It's the February 21st, 2020 episode of Weekly Signals Meltdown. Broadcasting from Studio A, KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And, as always, a billionaire who calls women bitches, and I'm not talking about Donald Trump, Mahler. The fake news dog. Good boy. Today we'll be talking about seaweed fuel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Unpriced risk, whale poop, polygamy, and more. But first, did you ever have a turtle? I did. Turtle named Buster. (laughs) Yes, uh, that was back when I was living with my girlfriend at the time in uh, Huntington Beach, and she wanted to have a turtle so we did and we called it buster who named it we did we called it I don't together know if, you named yeah it? we called you had it a list of names well maybe? we sort of you know we were riffing over a name and she came up with buster the bastard buster the bastard i don't know why but that was something she really really liked and uh-huh. so it stuck i think she was projecting <laughs> she might have been in retrospect i believe you're right <laughs> from earth sky yes earth sky that's a new journal Archaeologists discovered the shell of an extinct turtle the size of a Buick Regal. I know. Yeah. Well, couldn't it have been a Volkswagen bug? A Volkswagen It would Passat. seem to me a Passat. A Passat. It seems like a Volkswagen. It's sort of a... A Honda Accord. Okay. <laughs> it was a midsize. <laughs> okay. Is what it was. Okay. A midsize car. Midsize. It's the largest known turtle shell ever found, nine and a half feet long. That's amazing. That doesn't seem like a midsize, though. They wanted it to be a midsize. That almost seems like a compact. That's why the yeah. vo- I mean, the shape of a Volkswagen yeah, bug. It kind of inspired, maybe inspired yeah. the Volkswagen. Buster the Volkswagen. Yeah, there you go. Stupendemis Geographicus. That's, yeah, that's what they call. That almost sounds like an insult, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I thought it was a made-up name. Yeah, I thought maybe this was yeah. like a, a prank story. Exactly. And I looked it up. <laughs> Stupendemus Geographicus yeah. was about a hundred times the size of its closest living relative, the Amazon River turtle, and twice the size of the largest living turtle, the marine leatherback. Okay. What's marine leatherback? Yeah, What's what up that with is. that? Yeah. Males Stupendemis Geographicuses. Mm-hmm. Males had sturdy, front-facing horns on their shells. That's something completely new for a giant turtle. Yeah, so they were horny, is what you're saying. They had horns. Okay. Yeah, they had horns, and the researchers think the horns were used as weapons in male-male combat behaviors. Mm-hmm. That's with their words. Mm-hmm. When they got a little yeah. bit upset at each other, yeah. they would stick the other one. <laughs> now, there's a lot of shell action there, so I guess they were going for the face. Yeah, must they, have been. Scarring up their faces with their horns. Well, it's like rams do this. They're going right at the right at the head. Yeah, I would think it would sort of be rams? very slow motion, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. Can you imagine just, oh, I'm coming for you, and yeah. then bam. Bam. <laughs> bam. Yeah. That's all I got. Yeah, that's a good one. Let's go I home. Like it. Let's go. That's it. Call it a day. From Popular Mechanics. I always wonder about the name of that magazine. Are there any popular mechanics that you know of? Maybe there were some unpopular mechanics, yeah. and they were trying to change the perception of okay. mechanics back in the day when they started. Scientists discovered another new phase of matter. 
it's electronic and it's a big deal. It is a big it's deal. It's a very big deal. Now, I will say the article is very <laughs> dense. It's a very technical article that we're basing our story on. Yeah. But it, it gets to the matter finally when they tar- start talking about just how unique this is. Well, let me, yeah, let me try here. Yeah. By electrifying an interface made of lanthanum aluminate and uh, strontium titanate, researchers observed that electrons were grouping together into what they say is a new form of matter entirely. The electrons organized themselves to flow in parallel lanes through a conducting material, and researchers found that they were bunching into groups the researchers say are similar to what you find inside a superconductor. The self-grouping clusters of electrons followed their own lanes, like cars would, right. on a lane, and the conductance of those lanes corresponded with a diagonal series from Pascal's triangle. Well, see, there you go. Which is most often used by math students, Pascal's triangle, he, not the lane. He, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Math students learning binomial theorem and using the triangular set of integer values to decide what their coefficients are. So this is kind of a mathematical thing, only... It's playing out in in real life. Yeah. The link with Pascal's triangle is an astonishing part of the discovery. This is a whole family of new particles, a new form of electronic matter that we've discovered, a researcher said. The way the conductance steps up, according to Pascal's triangle, also models the discrete conductance of quantum particles in general, meaning conductance doesn't increase in a smooth line or a curve, it jumps in steps like a floor to a ceiling function. Yeah. That's crazy. It's stuff. a new discovery. A new one. The researchers, discoveries are often new. Yeah, generally. Yeah. The researchers believe this discovery is part of the new second quantum revolution. There you go. Where physicists are taking their massive and ever-growing amount of knowledge of quantum systems and using that to start building quantum computing, quantum teleportation, quantum communications, quantum sensing, and other stuff. And other stuff. Yeah. Quantum sex. I'm hoping. Really? I'm hoping. That falls under the quantum teleportation. <laughs> quantum sex. Jesus. Well, you know, mm-hmm. I, just, I, I you think know, there's a, a porn movie in there. Probably is. Yeah. Probably already been made. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to look it up. No, hold on. Just give me a second here. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Whoa. Wow. I didn't know you could do that. Well, they're in the same lane. I'll <laughs> well, say that. Really... Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, from Marijuana Business Daily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a new one on me. Marijuana Business Daily. The state of Colorado and three small businesses are trying to reduce carbon emissions using carbon dioxide produced from beer brewing to help marijuana plants grow. So they're making the beer. Yeah. It creates carbon. It creates They capture it. Right. And they ship it off to some marijuana people. Right. Denver Beer Company, Colorado's seventh largest craft brewery by volume, is testing technology to capture carbon dioxide emitted naturally during fermentation that was previously vented just straight into the air. Right. The refrigerator-sized carbon catcher purifies the greenhouse gas and chills it into a liquid. Stored in 750-pound tanks, the recovered CO2 is transported about nine miles to where growers vaporize the liquid and pump it into rooms full of cannabis to speed photosynthesis and what is the effect of that they grow fast they grow real fast yeah i mean like a day 
instant you pot. Get, you get <laughs> a six foot plant. It's that's gonna Just be the, that's that. that's gonna be the newest thing. Instant pot. <laughs> yeah. Just add photosynthesis. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, smaller. Colorado mm-hmm. is home to approximately one thousand one hundred and forty-two licensed marijuana growers Jeez. and about three hundred and ninety-six craft breweries. Wow. Yeah. The sixteen-week pilot program. The 16-week pilot program here with uh, beer and the marijuana and uh, carbon dioxide is designed as a cost-efficient way for breweries and cannabis firms to cut carbon dioxide emissions by eliminating the need for them to purchase the gas or the carbon dioxide from power plants and have it trucked across the state. Yeah. So they're living right next to each other there, probably a lot in Denver and yeah. and uh, maybe Rifle. Rifle might yeah. well silt, I know. They have a thriving. Yeah. So marijuana. they just cross-pollinate. Yeah. That's a good idea. Get a couple of people high and they start thinking about stuff. Yeah. Huh? Huh? You got CO2 over there at your microbrewery? I could yeah. use some of that. Yeah. If it proves successful, most CO2 emissions saved by the program would be the result of fewer truck trips. Yeah. So that's where the savings is. Yeah. Instead of having this shipped in from Tierra del Fuego, yes. they got it right there. They got it. Nice. Yeah. Good story. <laughs> if this news wants to, if this news makes you want to kick back as you often do, may I recommend a donation to KUCI before you collapse? <laughs> Just go to KUCI.org your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial free, free form, free speech radio, KUCI 88.9 FM. From Euronews. Mm-hmm. That's a good source, by the way. Well, I like Euronews. Is we're going to talk about Europe here. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's, we don't often get a, a perspective of the world from the world Outside of America, so uh-huh. uh, it's a, it's it's a good From source. Euro news. It's Euro news. European researchers have managed to produce enough fuel to drive a car by processing seaweed sugars. Yeah. Okay. Seaweed fuel is called a third-generation biofuel, presented as greener than previous biofuels made out of vegetables, agricultural residues, or waste, because it requires fewer resources. There you go. There are good reasons to use seaweed. Mm-hmm. Here's a little promotion here I'm doing for him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, 70% of our planet is covered by sea. Mm-hmm. And we don't use the sea much to produce food or materials. So there it is. There it is. A lot of space there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Along and the there's coasts. a lot of seaweed. Secondly, the seaweed needs only the water, sunlight, and a nutrient presence to grow fast. Once again... We're talking about fast agriculture here. Yeah. With we the don't marijuana. need to spray any no, sort of no. pesticides or anything. No. We just got it out there. Right. Ethanol and butanol are currently produced from a variety of sugars, and seaweeds contain many sugars that can be converted into butanol and ethanol. These days, biofuel, however, is very expensive. With further technical development, researchers think we can bring down the price by a factor of 100% using the uh, seaweed sugars. However, it may take a couple of decades for this process to be competitive on a large scale. Well, to scale up. There's always the the challenges to be able to produce it on a scale that would matter, that would be able to replace some of the current dirty, horribly destructive... Fossil fuels that we put our put in our cars now. So yes, yeah. 
but it's promising and it means science actually matters, right? Meanwhile, researchers were able to trick a Tesla into speeding by putting a strip of electrical tape over a speed limit sign. The tape was stuck on the three of a 35 miles per hour speed limit sign to make the three look like an eight. The change caused the Tesla to automatically accelerate to 85 miles per hour. Yeah, well, it's a few <laughs> bugs. Yeah, there are still a few bugs out there. I can't imagine. They're building cars, These some of these um, self-driving cars, without steering wheels or brakes? Yeah. Really? You yeah. don't really want somebody yeah. to be able to intervene if needed? They're that confident in the ability of the software well, to, to detect? There's, there's a lot of ticks in this. Yeah, that's and what I'm saying. Unfortunately, you're walking out in the street, and they're testing them on you. That's another thing, yeah. From MSNBC, Exelon, one of the nation's largest utilities, told the Trump EPA that Trump's EPA effort to change a rule that has cut emissions of mercury and other toxins is an act that is entirely unnecessary, unreasonable, and universally opposed by the power generation sector. That was Kathy Robinson, a senior manager for environmental policy at the company of Exelon. Mm -hmm. She also said the industry long ago complied with the rule, and it works. The sector has gotten so much cleaner as a result of the rule. It's just another example of the Trump administration trying to help their friends rather than trying to help the country. The coal executives, Trump's friends, have lobbied for more mercury, essentially, arguing that cutting it represented one of the worst excesses of what Trump calls the war on coal. Read Obama. Yeah, read Obama. The EPA plans to declare that it is not appropriate and necessary for the government to limit harmful pollutants from power plants, even though every utility in America has complied with standards put in place in 2011 under Obama. While it will technically keep existing restrictions on mercury in place, the Trump EPA rule means that government would not be able to count collateral benefits like reducing soot and smog when it sets limits on toxic air pollutants. It's a rollback that industry officials argue could open the door to new legal fights, prompt some plants to turn off their pollution controls completely, and ultimately make us sick. Yeah. And this is, again, where the social costs come in. How many people, how many more people will be affected by cancer or all kinds of respiratory illnesses? And they would do that all so that the Trump administration can rewire how the government weighs the costs of regulation. Yeah. The rule in question, known as the Mercury and Air Toxic Standards, targets a powerful neurotoxin that can affect the IQ and motor skills of children, even in utero. So it's just bad what they're doing here. Again, one other example of how long it's going to take to undo all of the damage being done by this administration. Yeah. Yeah. To reverse it. It's just... You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us at facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9 on our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com, on Twitter and Instagram at KUCIFM. Stream us live on TuneIn or go to KUCI.org. <laughs> Yeah. 
from the World Economic Forum. They always call it the We Forum. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. They call it that. Mm-hmm. World Economic Forum is what I say. You should. The climate crisis remains unaccounted for in financial markets, a new paper warns. If the market doesn't do a better job of accounting for climate change, we could have a recession the likes of which we've never seen before, said Paul Griffin, professor at UC Davis. I think he was burning Trump there, don't you? I think. Yeah. He was kind of trying to be funny, but in a sly, professorial way. Yeah, pithy and stick the knife in a little bit. Good. Good for him. The central message of Dr. Griffin's latest research is that there is too much unpriced risk in the energy market. Unpriced risk was the main cause of the Great Recession of 2007-2008, Griffin says. Right now, energy companies shoulder much of that risk. The market needs to better assess risk and factor a risk of extreme weather into security prices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, t- I agree. For example, excessive high temperatures like we had in the U.S. and Europe last summer can be deadly. Not only do they disrupt agriculture, harm human health, and stunt economic growth, they also can overwhelm and shut down vast parts of energy delivery, as they did in Northern California when PG&E shut down delivery during fires. Mm. And even when there were no fires, I think they still have that web page up where you can check out if they're going to shut you down. Yes. Extreme weather can also threaten other services like water delivery and transportation, which in turn affects businesses, families, and entire cities and regions, sometimes permanently. All of this strains local and bigger economies. Despite these obvious risks, investors and asset managers have been conspicuously slow to connect physical climate risk to company market valuations. In other words... People are valuing their businesses wrong, given climate crisis conditions. And this is something that's been going on forever in terms of evaluating companies. To simply look at the the books, simply look at the sort of data number-driven... Well, look at profits and losses as they see them within their small little company's eyeball, rather than looking at how everything's affecting them and they're affecting everything. Right. In some ways, it's the same as judging our gross domestic production as a way of measuring how well people in our society are doing. They're not the same. Those evaluations tend to favor companies and big business as opposed to looking at the social costs. This is another thing, the evolving science of social costs, which are becoming more and more sophisticated and understanding how the impact may not show up in a dollars and cents and a profit loss way, but they show up in other ways that cost society money. So, good. Glad to see that they're doing more of that. During this year's uh, Leap Day, it's coming right up, February 29th, Orange County, California clerk recorder Hugh Nguyen will be opening his offices for couples who want to get married. That's on a Saturday. He's doing a special service for us. So they only have to celebrate their anniversary once every four years? Is that? That's what we're talking about here. This year, Leap Day falls on a Saturday, so the department is trying to break its Leap Day record of 73 couples married and 108 licenses issued set on Leap Day in 2016. Okay. Yeah. If you're interested in having a Leap Day marriage, Mike, call 714 let me write this down. 834-2500. Okay. Thank you. That number again, 
2500. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile. Have you ever met anyone or know anyone who was born on Leap Day? Yeah. I have too. That's fascinating. I Mike. just wanted to know. Yeah. Well, maybe I haven't. <laughs> huh. Huh. Meanwhile, a Utah bill decriminalizing polygamy advanced to the state Senate. Something came across my radar about the new term thruples. Thruples. Meaning three people in a committed relationship, uh-huh. right? And that's an odd way to put it. That's how they refer to themselves as a thruple. Instead of a couple, they're a thruple. All right, all right. I'm just saying. So in the hip new world, you know, the sexual frontier. That's hip? I'm just, play along, all right? so The the, sexual frontier. The sexual frontier that we are in. I thought that happened like 20 years ago. I thought we regressed. That's part of what I was going to get to, and that is, on one hand, thruple, maybe you won't ever hear this term again, but maybe you will, is that forward thinking? Is that something that we should be thinking as a, an option for people? Uh-huh. And then you throw it into the world of the Mormons and polygamy. Yeah. You throw that idea in there. Yeah. It kind of colors my perception of all of, all of it. it of sort Mormons? Of, you think Mormons are swingers? Is that what you're no, trying to No, no. I'm not saying. No, just the opposite. I think, generally speaking, polygamy is, if not exclusively, a male imposed system. Oh, I thought I thought women took on a lot of men. Yeah. See, that's what mm. I'm saying. It's, it's, you it, had me confused. I'm just, all I'm like... trying to do is introduce the idea that this polygamy slash thruple world that uh-huh. we live in, we need to be nuanced in our approach to thinking about it. Why? Okay, we maybe we don't. Sorry. Yeah, I don't really care that much. Well, you I brought it, it up. Cu- well, I thought it was curious that it was going to the Senate. Given, you know, it's an up and down relationship that Utah has with yeah. polygamy. Yeah, because it's, they had it and then they didn't have well, it. And because and it's, now that Trump's a novice, they want to have it again. Yeah, because go back to the good old days. Polygamy has generally been a oh. male dominating way of controlling women. There you of go. Of controlling women, yeah, not having right. that they have any say in it. So, so I just. Tell me about it, Mike. How did men control women? Sing it, women? brother. <laughs> sing it. From Reason to be Cheerful. This is David Byrne's web project. Okay. Reason to be Cheerful. Researchers believe that rebuilding populations of great whales could significantly increase the amount of polygamy. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. They're into it too, huh? Wow. Rebuilding populations of great whales could significantly increase the vast amount of atmospheric carbon absorbed by tiny marine algae called phytoplankton, which rely on nutrients from the great whale's fecal plumes. I love that phrase there, fecal plumes. I have have been in the middle of a fecal plume now now and again. Really? Yeah. It was Uh, mostly metaphorical. A fecal plume. You mean like somebody... Talking right. crap? Yeah. Uh, Something like that. It's their shite spray. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Their poo wake. Uh-huh. <laughs> the largest animal that ever has lived, blue whales can grow up to 100 feet long and weigh over 180 tons. Jesus. An entire African elephant can fit inside their mouth. 
That's pretty uh, wow. amazing there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine how many molars they could get inside their mouth? Molar would be like, you know, they'd spit them out. They'd spit you out, boy. They'd He'd, spit you, know, you out. Molar gets stuck in their teeth. That's that's how, how big of these these things are. Yeah. Like yeah. all living things, including molar, mm-hmm. whales accumulate carbon in their bodies as they grow and because they typically sink. When they die, they take all that carbon with them. But that's not you, Mother. You you won't sink. (laughs) But the whales do. The average whale can carry the equivalent of 1,500 trees worth of carbon to the bottom of the ocean Mm. and out of the atmospheric circulation for centuries when it dies. Now, that was a silly statistic as far as I'm concerned because 1,500 what? 1,500 redwood trees? That's true. Or 1,500 crepe myrtles? Yeah. Come on. It is while they're alive, however, that whales play a more active role in fighting climate change, feasting on shrimp-like krill. Krill, yeah. You know, little, I love that. Those little uh, crawdaddy things, mm-hmm. crustaceans. Mm-hmm. And in the deep waters, they release fecal plumes rich in nitrogen and iron when they surface to breathe. Yeah. In delivering these deep ocean nutrients to the sunlit surface, they encourage the growth of phytoplankton, the microscopic algae that are the lungs of the planet. Mm-hmm. Phytoplankton capture about 40% of the world's carbon emissions and produce half of all atmospheric oxygen, the equivalent of four Amazon rainforests. Now, this statistic... That seems like a lot. Yeah, four of them, right there with a little phytoplankton. Every second breath you take, Mike. There's one. There's a second one. That one was provided by phytoplankton. Thank Every you. Every second breath you Thank take. Thank you, phytoplankton. Yeah. Same with you, Mahler. Every second breath. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. There's one. Well, that was about five or six. I think so, yeah. I thank the phytoplankton, Mother. Phytoplankton are also the primary food supply of krill, so whales are helping to feed their own food supply by providing the nutrients that nourish them. It's this, a good little system they this got This is a win-win yeah. for everybody here. Scientists believe this is why whales poop within phytoplankton blooms, helping to maximize the biological benefit to themselves. And here's the good part for economists, mm-hmm. if you, because we've been talking a lot about economy. Yep, we have. An average whale in its lifetime will store the equivalent of 32 tons of carbon dioxide in its body. Factoring in enhanced carbon capture by phytoplankton from fecal fertilizing, as well as improving local fish stocks, great whales are worth at least $2 million each. Wow. If you just kind of factor out, you know, yeah. how great they are just to have around, yeah. you know, and, and, how, how and marvel much, at them. And such an important part of the ecosystem of yeah. the, our oceans. Yeah, if you're an economist, they're worth $2 million each because of what they're doing to clean the, the system. Amazing. Multiplied by all the filter-feeding whales on the planet. That means whales provide over $1 trillion in economic value around the world. Wow. Now that there are hard numbers on the wow. ecosystem services provided by giant whales, economists could craft marketing-based pricing mechanisms so that whales could, in effect, fund their own recovery efforts, and save us in the process. Wow, that's just remarkable. Yeah. What a great story. From Salon, a military perspective on climate change could bridge the gap between scientists and climate change deniers. Yep. This is kind of a follow-up. You got your whales working for you. 
Now we've got a new way to look at climate change or the climate crisis, which we've talked about before, but I like to say it again. Although Trump has called climate change a Chinese hoax. Can we just stop? Yeah, I know, that's what we, I'm doing. I, it, every time I, I just hear that, it, yeah. it, uh, it's mind-boggling. and if, Part of me feels really sorry. Yeah. For anyone who buys into this, but then I feel sorry for my children right. and for the whole planet, and it makes me angry. He's a fool, okay? He just happens to be president, and he's a malicious fool, yeah. right? I think he does these things because he wants to make money, and he's a pathological narcissist, and by being president, people give him money, and he doesn't care about any of this yeah. except making money. The hate I have that goes into this, the hate... Yeah. that I do have is not for him. It's for what he's done to the presidency. It's for yeah. him as a leader. Right. He does not deserve to be a leader. I hate that. And I also, on that same path, the enablers. Yeah. You know, this would be over. None of this would be happening. None of it. If Mitch McConnell did his job, simply did his it's job. It's not just him. It's the whole whole lot of them. Yeah. But he's key. But, yeah. Still, oh, he's he? key. But you got you got yeah, a know. lot of others. Yeah, you got a lot of others. <laughs> Although Trump has called climate change a Chinese hoax and worked to reverse the Obama administration's climate initiatives, senior U.S. military officers have long been aware of the climate crisis. That's right. Military leaders believe climate change seriously threatens U.S. national security. It'll stir up chaos and conflict abroad endangering coastal bases and stressing soldiers and equipment, which undermines military readiness. But rather than debating the causes of climate change, the military focuses on how warming undermines security and on practical steps to slow its advance and minimize damage. The armed forces have already built seawalls at Langley Air Force Base and are relocating sensitive electronic equipment at coastal bases from ground level to upper stories or higher elevations. So they're already reacting to the climate crisis. And we have the so-called leader, commander-in-chief, at odds with them. The Defense Department also is investing in renewable energy, including solar panels and biofuels. By the end of 2020, U.S. armed forces expect to generate almost 20% of on-base electricity from renewables. It should be more, but at least they're moving on it. Right. And I think that number is supposed to double in another decade. Right. They plan to increase that share substantially in the years ahead. Military planning for climate change does not dwell on threats to habitats and species. It emphasizes the social strife state collapse, and armed violence that are likely to occur in countries already suffering from scarce resources and ethnic friction. And from mass migration, yeah. the threats that that destabilizing of the of the world's uh, government. You know, this is something that, to their credit, the Pentagon has been talking about this threat assessment of climate damage, climate change, yeah. since the early 2000s. I think even as early as the late 1990s, they, yeah. were, they put this out as something to be concerned about. And again, taking it out of the realm of the environmental community and just into the raw threat to the United States and to our interest in the world, yeah. that's all they're looking at it from. And they see it as the most significant threat yeah. to U.S. security in the coming decades. The most significant threat. Hello. Yeah. If you're out there and you're a conservative Trump supporter. Yeah. 
you're messing with our armed forces. People who say that protecting endangered habitats and species is trivial compared with health and economic problems might be persuaded to take climate action when they hear from military brass that the nation's security is at stake because of the climate crisis. This is already happening in some communities like Norfolk, Virginia, where base commanders and local officials have found common ground in addressing the area's extreme vulnerability to sea level rise and hurricane-induced flooding even congressional Republicans, many of whom have long opposed addressing climate change, are starting to issue plans to curb it. Framing climate policy in national security terms might help win conservative support. I hope so. Not as long as the Republican Party is a cult of personality. It won't. Meanwhile, global arms trade is a nearly $200 billion business, and the U.S. drives nearly 80% of it. Which, you know, on one hand, you want the military to, to be able to move people to address climate change. On the other hand, defund them, goddammit, well, and put some money into some practical things so we can actually address climate change instead of moving military computers to higher places and bases and seawalls around right. the military. We need seawalls in areas that are civilian populated. Right. Back in the Obama administration... They were, wanted to move more aggressively into renewables and solar panels and then the rest of it. The Republicans on those committees refused to even consider this. The U.S. military is Im- immense. It is the largest single entity outside of a state actor in the consumption of fossil fuels in the entire world. Yeah. From Euronews. Nonprofits in the European Parliament have long been calling for the introduction of eco-designed requirements aimed at extending the lifetime of smartphones. Smartphones tend to have a shorter average lifetime than other household electronic and information communication technology products, with most phones being used less than three years before they're replaced. Each year, more than 210 million smartphones are sold to feed Europe's thirst for new devices, equivalent to six new phones every second. This is another European story here, so we're only talking about Europe. The annual climate impact of Europe's stock of over 600 million smartphones is equivalent to more than 14 million tons of CO2. Analysis by the European Environmental Bureau shows that extending the lifetime of Europe's smartphones by just one year could save 2.1 million tons of CO2 equivalent annually. Common reasons for replacing phones include cracked screens, flagging batteries, damaged headphone jacks, and charging (sighs) ports. You got all that stuff. This month, together with the campaign group Right to Repair Europe, the European Environmental Bureau sent a letter to EU officials demanding regulatory action on smartphones. They're asking the European Commission to set minimum manufacturing requirements that would force companies like Samsung, Huawei, and Apple to design smartphones that can be disassembled with readily available tools. This would make it much easier to replace a cracked screen or a weak battery. They also want manufacturers to provide spare parts and repair information to all repairers and consumers, which would boost the availability and affordability of repair services. Right. We just got to get with the right to repair and all this electronic equipment. It's really ridiculous that we're just tossing all this back into the ecosystem. And the idea that the products that we're buying now, we're really just leasing? We don't really own them? Are you? What? 
from KQED, that's San Francisco Public Television. It's been about a month since California rolled out the toughest consumer data privacy law in the nation. As of January, you can demand that any company detail what information it collects about you, tell it to stop selling the information to other companies, or even delete the data altogether. And if a company negligently allows itself to be hacked, exposing your data, you can sue. But already there's talk of another law, the California Privacy Rights Act. The new one would add clarifying language, among other things, that businesses should not collect the personal information of children without consent. Amen. Should only collect consumers' personal information for specific purposes and should provide consumers with easily accessible tools to obtain their personal information, correct or delete it, and to opt out of its sale to other parties. Getting information on children is a big yeah. deal, and they've been doing this for, for a long time, and amen to that. That sounds great. And finally, the American televangelist Jim Baker promoted a liquid called Silver Solution that he claimed could eliminate the coronavirus in 12 hours. Not to be outdone, the head of a Hindu nationalist group in India advocated combating the coronavirus by eating cow dung. You can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.